Well, good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Coach. <laughs> so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's good to have Greenhouse back. I mean, that's a big milestone for our community, just having the kids and the families back. Um, hope you were able to enjoy your extra hour of rest this morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, um, you know, we invited our pastoral candidate who would potentially join our team. And I do, with great excitement and gratitude, want to announce that our covenant members have voted and affirmed Christopher Mack to be our pastor of community and teaching. So. So it's been a long journey and process, but again, we want to thank the search committee for all their hard work uh, on this. And if you didn't get a chance to meet him uh, last week, uh, feel free to check out Liturgy either on YouTube or our podcast, uh, just to get a better sense and connect with him. Um, So this morning, we're going to be exploring a warning that Jesus uh, offers us when it comes to how things might appear based on the externals, but how that's actually covering up Uh, what's underneath, and something that's mismatched. So before we jump in, I want to give you a moment to reflect on this question. When was a time you had a good initial impression about something? Um, Only to dig a little deeper or spend a little bit more time with it and realize it was not as great or appealing as you had first imagined. All right, It could be uh, an experience, maybe something you tried out this pandemic, Uh, It could be a place that you visited. Maybe it could be a person. Just don't say it's the person next to you. Um, So, again, what's something that didn't match your initial impression? I'll give you a moment to share that with someone next to you. And for those online, you can throw that on the chat. All right. Any any thoughts out there? I know it seems still a little early for us. I don't know. Even with the extra hour, it seems a little bit early. Uh, But any thoughts out there? Any things that didn't really match your first impressions? Nothing? Come on, something. Anything? Everything matches your first impression? Everything's great? <laughs> Nothing's disappointed you before? Crypto? <laughs> okay. Visiting Seattle and Portland. Ouch. Okay. <laughs> Hope we don't have anyone from Seattle or Portland here. <laughs> visiting San Francisco. Okay. I bet you people say the same thing about Austin, actually. I'm sure. I'm sure. Anything else? New job duties. New job duties. Oh, yeah, they, they seem exciting at first, huh? Until you start doing them. Um, years ago, we took a, a road trip, our family did, up to Toronto. And on the way back, we stopped at the Crater of Diamonds State Park in Arkansas. And so when I first read about it, it sounded amazing. You know, it's like you can dig around for diamonds, and whatever you find, you get to keep right? Which is amazing. And so just to give you context, uh, I think someone found a four and a half carat diamond just two months ago. And then I think last year, someone found a nine carat diamond. And so, you know, our kids loved the idea. They were all like, okay, let's do this. And, you know, we were imagining how many we were going to find, how big they were going to be. And so we showed up and we realized that were other people that were taking this way more seriously than we were. I mean, they had their own equipment, like sifting pans. They, were, they had knee pads. Uh, we showed up with, like, beach toys and, like, a sand bucket. <laughs> and we're like, okay, we're going to find some. And so, you know, we were still hopeful. 
And so I, you know, I told Zachary to get an area, told Gabby to take an area. I think Clementine was three at the time, so I told her just to make some sandcastles. And so, you know, it was fun for like the first minute. <laughs> and then it was just so hot. And we realized there are probably thousands of people who have already searched this area. Like, I don't know if we're going to find anything. And so it was, to be honest, it was a little bit underwhelming. And so we were ready to just, you know, call it a day, hit the road. And did it, has anyone gone before? Okay, so has it, have you found anything? Did you find anything? Oh, thanks for sharing that, Josh. You put my story to shame. <laughs> So for the rest of us who, you know, didn't find any diamonds or... Um, but thank you for sharing that. Um, but in our lectionary text uh, for this morning, you know, Jesus provides us a warning uh, that's meant to highlight oppressive practices that were happening under the surface. And at first glance, right, the initial impression is that these religious leaders who looked like they were successful and they deserved attention were actually underneath, they were entitled or at first, the initial impression is that they looked like experts and they looked extremely devout, but underneath, they were abusing their power. And what seems to be an act of generosity, underneath it is actually a broken system that doesn't protect the vulnerable. And so the question I want to explore this morning is how are we invited to confront the different forms of oppression that Jesus warns us about that are hiding under the surface? that might even be expressed by our own community. And so in Mark chapter 12, Jesus attempts to uncover the layers of oppression that seem to be hidden to his disciples and to us. And so we start in verse 38. As he taught, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. And just to offer a bit of context about the scribes, I mean, they were part of the religious order. They were scholars of the Hebrew scriptures. They were experts in their laws. And most of them were antagonistic towards Jesus because, right, he was disrupting the, the carefully designed structure and order and systems that they had spent all their lives working to put in place. And many of the scribes worked closely with the priests and with the governing class, so they had access to wealth and influence. And even though this specific interaction is about the scribes, Jesus is actually highlighting a much broader and uh, an epidemic when it comes to those seeking recognition and fame. And these scribes were essentially fully living into celebrity culture of their time. And they were taking advantage of, of that in order to gain respect and attention. And there's an inherent posture of condescension when towards others when you think you're entitled to the best seats or to the places of honor. And so they obviously had a high value and importance of themselves. And so for us, Jesus warns against oppression that comes in the form of narcissism. Those who are self-absorbed and overly dependent on their external image. And when individuals or systems live out of narcissistic tendencies, it can be oppressive, 
you know, both to the people who are impacted and to those who are actually living from that place themselves. And this is something that's inherent to the human condition and to the human experience. This is how Eugene Peterson reflected on it. He said, On the ribbon of highway that stretches from California to New York, the mass of people seem completely self-absorbed. 150 years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville visited America from France and wrote, Each citizen is habitually engaged in contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. And in a century and a half, things have not improved. For all the diverse and attractive, buzzing and mysterious reality that is everywhere evident, no one and no thing interrupt people more than momentarily from obsessive preoccupation with themselves. And Eugene Peterson wrote these words over 35 years ago. And so clearly nothing has changed, whether it's a couple of centuries or a couple of decades. And over time, our self-absorption continues to make its way through our fabric of society and even in our churches. You know, I've been reading this book by Chuck DeGroat called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And he's a former pastor, currently a professor, who spent a couple of decades researching uh, the dynamics of pastors and churches that are embedded in toxic narcissistic cultures. And he looks at the hurt and pain that it causes everyone involved. And I think many of us have been through similar church experiences before. And, I, and he hit on something that made me feel a bit uncomfortable because if it reflected back to me some of what I've experienced uh, being a part and leading this community over the years. And he said that people want to be part of something special. I mean, that's just in our nature. But when that becomes the central focus, that easily leads to comparison and finding everything else not measuring up. And so for us, like we truly wanted to create a safe space, a safe space here at Vox uh, for those who were questioning and had doubts about God, about the Christian faith, about church. And you know, when people tell you that they haven't experienced anything like this anywhere else, that can get to your head a little bit. And honestly, that began to feed our ego and seep into our culture. And so during the middle years of Vox, you know, within our staff, there was some arrogance and even some condescension towards other church communities who we thought weren't doing things as well as we were. You know, we drank the Kool-Aid of our own success, whatever we defined success as. And we got to the place where we felt entitled that we should be the model for other churches or that we embraced news articles and stories that were written about us. And when you start believing that you have something to offer that no one else does, it creates an, opp an oppressive environment that doesn't make space for disagreement or for authentic reflection. And it can be easy and simplistic even to point the finger at charismatic and dynamic leaders as the source of narcissism in all our churches. But on the flip side, it's just as difficult to name and to identify the narcissism in each of us. You know, in one of his chapters, DeGroat focuses on how the different faces of narcissism play out in each of the Enneagram types, which is a really helpful reminder that we can all carry 
and express some form of narcissism. You know, for me, as a nine on the Enneagram, peacemaker, it's not as obvious, but there can be layers of covert narcissism that can surface. So when I'm under stress or, you know, when I'm in a, in a season of un- unhealth, right, there's more internal judgment going on. For me, when, you know, I'm wondering why others aren't responding or engaging the way I would, or why others aren't, you know, functioning or seeing things the way I do. It still comes back to my perspective. And just because it's internal doesn't mean that it's not real. And it doesn't still have an impact on those around me. And part of healing from the oppressive narcissism that infects our churches, including Vox, is to name and acknowledge the reality of both covert and overt narcissism. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is just to spend some time reflecting on the ways that we can be consumed with ourselves. To honestly evaluate what it is that feeds our egos. What do we seek attention and recognition for? And how might it contribute to us becoming even more self-absorbed? And then spend some time reflecting on the ways we might embody the humility of Christ that doesn't carry entitlement. And so Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. And then we continue in verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so Jesus comes out strong, right? And he's accusing the scribes for their oppressive and predatory tactics uh, on the vulnerable. And at that time and in that culture as women, widows were unable to manage their finances. And so scribes would step in as the experts on inheritance laws. And so they had the power to either show mercy to the widows and let them stay in their husbands' houses, or they could just devour them, split it up with the sons, or even take the houses for themselves. And the scribes would also manage the widows' estates for a fee, which would often lead to financial abuse. And so while this is all happening behind closed doors, right, they appear to be devout as cover for their abuse of power. They would do anything to maintain their position of control and influence. And so for us, Jesus warns against oppression that comes in the form of power dynamics. Because it's so easy to consciously or even subconsciously take advantage of a power differential, especially when we have control. And if we're honest, we'd rather choose to be the ones with power because we don't have the imagination for another way of being with people or with communities. This is how Henry Nouwen puts it. He said, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. One thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, 
intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. And he's saying that, you know, much of our desire to pursue power and control comes from a lack of groundedness when we don't truly believe that we're already loved. And if we're unable to receive the love God already offers us, it's nearly impossible to extend that same love to others, which makes it that much harder to release our grip on control and power. And that's why Jesus came embodied as a human to offer us another way and model for what it means to lay down power, to let go of control. And for Vox, this is why we had a very meaningful and necessary conversation over the past year. Uh, When our previous lead pastor resigned unexpectedly last fall, one of the big decisions we reflected on was whether we should continue with the lead pastor model or to actually shift to a more flatter leadership structure, something like a pastoral team model, which is more sustainable and actually more reflective of who we already are and hope to lean into even more. You know, throughout the second half uh, of our existence as a church, some of the more meaningful feedback uh, or consistent feedback that we would get from folks who were just starting to attend was that they weren't sure who was really in charge. Um, You know, every week there'd be someone else giving the homily. Or throughout liturgy, there'd be different people reading prayers or making announcements or or leading Eucharist. Uh, Lena, who's on staff with us now, she shared how confusing it was for her when she first started attending. You know, one week she'd be like, oh, I think that's the person in charge. And the next week she's like, no, 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 wait. I think that's the person who's making things happen. And the next week she's like, I give up. Can't figure this out. And I think to some degree we took pride in how it was difficult it was to pin down who was actually leading this community. And at the same time, I think it just revealed some communication gaps that we clearly need, clearly need to work on. But when our navigation team finally discerned to shift and move towards a pastoral team model, this proposal resonated with our covenant members. And we unanimously voted to adopt and change our bylaws to reflect this structural change. And as we begin to transition into this next season of Vox, I mean, the hope is that if we can model at the leadership level what it means to share leadership instead of hoarding it, and we can create and embody this culture where we can learn how to lay down power, I think that's meaningful for us as a community, for our city, for our neighborhoods. And that way we can make space for all the voices in our community so that we can actually fully live into the work of the people, where it's not about one individual, where it's not about those who have power, but instead it's about choosing love over power, the cross over control, and being led by Christ instead of feeling entitled to lead others. And so for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to reflect on what we do with the power and influence that we might have in our own circles. Maybe it's on our team at work, 
or maybe our family structures, or maybe it's you know, our role as a parent or a friend or a mentor or a caregiver. Like, what would it look like for us to lay down our power and engage in mutuality so that we can embody this alternative way that Christ models for us? And then we close in verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so for many of us, you know, who've heard this story before, one of the usual takeaways is that we all need to give like this widow. Right? If she only had a couple pennies left and she was able to give it all away, right, then why can't we practice the same kind of generosity? And while it is an incredible display of giving, right, maybe the deeper question that we need to explore is why did she even need to do this in the first place? How did it get to this point where a widow needs to give the last two coins in her possession. And when you take this story in context with what Jesus was just warning his disciples about, this is more of a continued critique of the practices that were oppressing the vulnerable. Jesus is just driving home his point with an actual example that's playing out in front of them. I mean, the system is so oppressive that a poor widow someone that the religious leaders should be protecting and advocating for just gave the rest of her life savings because she was taught to do that. All in support of a system that was turning their backs on her. And so as Jesus is sitting down and observing and watching, he notices this widow, not necessarily because of her generosity, but for the way the system was continuing to oppress her. And he wanted to draw attention to that. And for us, Jesus warns against oppression that comes in the form of wealth and resources. When there's already a disparity between those who have and those who don't, how are we engaging that gap? How are we drawing attention to and advocating for the vulnerable? This is how Walter Brueggemann describes it. He says, in both his teaching and his very presence, Jesus presented the ultimate criticism of the royal consciousness. He has, in fact, dismantled the dominant culture and nullified his claims. The way of his ultimate criticism is his decisive solidarity with marginal people and the accompanying vulnerability required by that solidarity. The only solidarity worth affirming is solidarity Solidarity characterized by the same helplessness they know and experience. And so just as Jesus does in this moment and throughout his life, he was always drawing attention to and advocating for the vulnerable. He lived in solidarity with the oppressed, which ultimately led to his own experience of being oppressed and being made vulnerable on the cross. 
And so instead of applauding the widow for her generosity, maybe an alternative takeaway from this story should be wondering why no one is stepping in and advocating for her in this broken system. And I know there are many of us in this community um, who are engaged in advocacy work, whose vocation is to you know, be with people and be in solidarity with those who are vulnerable. You know, recently, Lindsey Gray, one of our members, she reached out to me about her nonprofit that's working uh, to advocate for and support Af- Afghan refugees who are trying to come to the States and need sponsorship. And in particular, trying to reunite unaccompanied children who made their way here miraculously, but the rest of their family is still trying to find a way to come. And so we're looking into how Vox might be able to participate and help in being part of that gap. And historically, the partnerships that Vox engages with, right, they're meant for us as an opportunity to draw attention to and advocate for the most vulnerable. You know, our global partnership with the Ashish Center in India, over the years, it's given us an opportunity to participate in addressing the gap of educational opportunities uh, for children with autism in Delhi who are uh, severely underserved. And some of our recent local partnerships here in Austin, like Posada Esperanza, they advocate for and support women and children who are escaping domestic and cultural violence. Or even Inside Books, who we host in our library. Right? They advocate for those who are incarcerated in Texas by sending them books and letters. And I hope we can continue to participate in these opportunities and whatever opportunities you might discover on your own. And so Vox, my hope for us, for our leadership, for our community in this next season is that we would embrace and embody the simple and sometimes unrecognizable acts of just being faithful in the little things instead of seeking the attention and recognition of doing something great that we could live and love the way Jesus did, in the margins, in the shadows, in the places with the people that won't necessarily feed our egos, fully embracing the spirituality of the ordinary and offering our power as a way of being in solidarity with those who are vulnerable. So let me close with this prayer. God who loves us without condition and invites us to live as we are created to be. May we be less consumed with ourselves and more aligned with extending love. Jesus who gave up power by stepping into our world, may we release our grip of control and embrace mutuality in our relationships and spirit who opens our eyes to see what's hidden and unnoticed. May we become more aware of and advocate for the vulnerable and the oppressed. And we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the empathy of Christ, and the discernment of the spirit. Amen.